Now let's turn in our Bibles to the gospel according to John, and this morning to John chapter 8, and we're going to read a few verses from John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, and beginning to read in verse 12. Uh, We've been skimming through uh, the gospel according to John. I'm reminded of a television advert. I'm not sure whether it was in the States or in the UK for Kellogg's Conflicts, where there's a boy sitting eating a plate of conflicts, and he looks up and he says, I'd forgotten how good they really are. And John's gospel is like this. And while we're skimming through it, uh, I hope uh, you will turn to it, maybe old uh, to you, more interested in Romans than in John's gospel. That's a good sign. It's time to spend some time reading John's gospel, isn't it? And uh, today we come to another long chapter. I'm only going to read a few verses, but we will be looking at the whole chapter. If you're using the church Bible and need some help, it's on page 1073. There's actually a continuation of what happened uh, in John chapter 7. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, where the people remember how they lived during the wilderness wanderings. And even if they go to Jerusalem, they don't live in houses. Uh, They make little makeshift tents, um, and they live in them for a week. Um, It's a kind of, let's remember what it was like. And the feast celebrated what God had done during the wilderness wanderings. And we're remembering John's gospel has a prologue and an epilogue. It has two sections, sometimes called the book of signs, first 12 chapters basically, and then the book of the glory of Christ. And many of its themes are thrown out in the prologue like an overture to an opera or some symphony. And we see these themes reoccurring again and again. Jesus is the the Word from God, and so He speaks God's Word. Jesus is the Word who created all things, and now He comes to recreate life. And especially in these chapters, how Torah, the story of the first five books of the Bible that are known as Torah, the story of the Exodus and the the wilderness wanderings, especially when those books were actually written. Uh, The law, Torah, came through Moses, but the reality, grace and truth, comes through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is showing how each of these feasts that the people have that celebrate the wilderness following the Exodus pointed forward to him. And so he says, verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I 
judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I can't read John chapter 8 verse 12 without my whole life flashing before me, and if there's time, I'll return to the reason for that. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, and last time we saw that the Feast of Booths was a festival of water, celebrating the days in the wilderness when Moses had struck the rock and water had flowed from it. You remember how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and that rock was Christ, pictured Christ, looked forward to Christ. And so, there is this great festival when the people live as though they were in the wilderness, and they have a a water ritual every single day in the feast. And then on the last day, all is silent. And on the last day, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, then let him come to me and drink, whoever believes in me, because out of me to whoever believes in me, there will flow rivers of living water that will quench their thirst. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in Him, Horatius Bonner uh, taught us to sing. Thirst quenching living water from the Lord Jesus. But the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths was also a festival of light, a festival of water, and also a festival of light, remembering the days in which as the people went through the desert during the day, this bright cloud led them through the desert, and at night, it became like a pillar of fire. And so, the memory of this, how God had led them through the desert and how He had shone light into their darkness was very vivid for them. And this was vividly expressed, the the rabbis have recorded, at the the Festival of Tabernacles. There were these four great lampstands placed in in the, the most extensive space in Jerusalem, in the temple courtyard. And a trainee priest would climb up and they would stuff these lampstands that had four other lampstands with them. They would stuff them with the, with the ruined garments of the priests as wicks, and then they would carry up vast quantities of oil. And at nighttime, these lamps would be lit. And there would be rejoicing. Ever seen uh, maybe on YouTube or in a movie somewhere, uh, Hasidic Jews at their services dancing? 
You know, there are worship wars among Orthodox Jews as well as among Christians, dancing around, perhaps the rabbi leading them with the scrolls of Torah, and they dance around, and Jerusalem was filled apparently with men dancing around, and at the same time, rather dangerously, each of them holding their own torch, but it was a light torch, a flame of fire, and such was the light that came from the temple that it was said every courtyard in the city of Jerusalem was illumined by this light. There was dancing, there was singing, the, the Israeli National Orchestra was playing, the Levites were singing. And it was said if you had never seen the joy at the Feast of Tabernacles, you had never really seen joy. And now it's the last day and the lamps are not lit. And Jesus says, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Everything tonight goes into darkness, but I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And a dialogue is created, very obviously, even in the little section that we read, a dialogue. This is a, this is a this is like a courtroom scene because we've already seen that throughout John's gospel, Jesus is under trial. He's being tested. They're demanding witnesses who will confirm his identity. And throughout this chapter, I want to just, as it were, pull on four threads that emerge as Jesus teaches again in the temple precincts. And uh, he begins to he begins to expose the hearts of people. And he does it in four ways, very gradually, very firmly, very graciously. He always does that, gradually, firmly, graciously. And first of all, he wants to show them the spiritual darkness in which they walked. And this is implied even in these words, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You're living in darkness, he says. The very fact that you celebrate this festival and this festival comes to an end on the last day in darkness should have taught you something about your spiritual condition, that you're actually living, says Jesus, in the darkness. And the problem with living in the darkness is that you are not able to see. We've said often enough that you never live in the darkness in a city. It's always ambient light. You live some remote rural part of Scotland, go out on a cloudy night, and you cannot see your hand if you, if you stick it onto your nose. That's the kind of darkness Jesus is speaking about here, the deep darkness, the darkness of which the 23rd Psalm speaks, though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. And he's saying that's where you are spiritually. And the evidence is that you're not able to see. Actually, they're all experiencing what Jesus had told Nicodemus was true of him. You remember how he'd said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless, unless you experience a heavenly birth and illumination, you're not even be able to see the kingdom of God. You're not able to see and recognize who the king is. And you remember how we've seen Nicodemus said, I can't see that, Jesus. 
And and it's evident here too. They deny that they live in the darkness, but the evidence that they live in the darkness is that they're not actually able to see. And Jesus is exposing the darkness. Happened to lift up a big stone in the garden the other day, and guess what? All the creepy crawlies, you know, they, I didn't even know there were any creepy crawlies, but they all start appearing, quickly put the stone back. And you see, when the light of the world comes and begins to shine into people's lives, the creepy crawlies begin to appear. And this chapter is full of the creepy crawlies of the human heart. And they all give expression to the fact that they can't see clearly, but the problem is they think that they can. It's the old Sermon on the Mount stuff, isn't it? That people love but never read. When Jesus says, listen, if the light in you is actually darkness, how great is that darkness? So, you see, this is their spiritual condition. Give you a very trivial, humorous illustration. I, I was giving a lecture in Austin, Texas years ago. I was picked up with a man in a BMW. Now, that's always a treat. You know, Zoom, the BMW goes. We had lunch together. He says, you know, the last time I was in this restaurant was when I, when I was getting the new car. He was obviously a BMW purchaser. He said, but the strangest thing happened. I agreed to meet my wife here after I'd got the car. She, says, uh, she came in and said, where's the car? He said, it's, it's in the parking lot. She said, what color is it? He said, it's kind of greeny, kind of gray, greeny kind of color. I, said, I didn't see one. He says, just around here. Come on, I'll show you while we've ordered to come out. He says, that's over there. Well, what actually happened was the dealer had said, I can give you a really good deal on this one. $7,000 off. Well, that's fine. He was a good steward of God's provision for him, even though he was a BMW driver. (laughs) But he forgot something. The optometrist will put me right here in my color scheme, but do you know what she said? That BMW is pink. (laughs) Oh, he said, I forgot I was colorblind. (laughs) Silly man. But you see the point? You're absolutely sure you can see and that you're right. But you're actually, says Jesus, in spiritual darkness. You're spiritually color blind. But then, as the conversation develops, Jesus turns to another feature. They're not only in spiritual darkness, but they're also in spiritual death, walking in spiritual darkness, but living in spiritual death. And there again, you see, I'm alive. But Jesus says, You're only alive physically. You're not really alive spiritually. And he underscores this, doesn't he? Look at what he says in verse 21 and then again in verse 24. I'm going away and you'll seek me. You'll die in your sin. And then in verse 24, he says, I told you, you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And you see what their, their reaction is. This, this is nonsense. But of course, this is the consistent teaching of the whole of the New Testament. 
that apart from Jesus Christ, we are spiritually dead, even while we think that we are spiritually alive. Have you ever heard anyone say, I, I, I've heard this a great deal in recent years. I'm not a Christian, of course, but I'm a very spiritual person. You say that to the Lord Jesus, he would say, yes, you are a very spiritual person. The problem is you're also a very dead person spiritually. What would be the evidence of that? Uh, you think my garden is an interesting place. Went out to the garden and there was this beautiful robin. And uh, I'm really a big softy inside. It's just, you know, they're so beautiful. I thought I'll, I'll get up nearer and I got up nearer and uh, I thought it would fly away, but it didn't. And then I got up really near and I realized it wasn't moving. It was dead. Had all the appearance of life. But you see, the first sign was that when I came near, there was no response. And this is, this is such a this is such a reality in our lives, isn't it? That we think we are spiritually alive. And one of the things that enables us to feel we are spiritually alive is we can say things like, I'm not a Christian, but I'm really a very spiritual person. And we don't realize that what we are saying to Him about ourselves is, I am absolutely dead spiritually. There is no response of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And as the conversation goes on, Jesus is able to demonstrate to them just how, how much this is true. And it's not only sad, it's tragic. He'll go on to say it's eternally tragic because we are not saved by dying. As so many people seem to, isn't it amazing the number of people who turn into angels as soon as they die? You know, that's a sign of the absolute spiritual bankruptcy of our time, that we think that is so. Why would anyone who did not want Christ in life want Christ in death? Who possesses people to lose all sense of reason and logic? Well, says Jesus, it's because they're in spiritual darkness even as they walk, and they're in spiritual death even as they live. And then, then the light shines even more brightly, and he makes a third point. He says, and they are in spiritual bondage. And he speaks very directly to them now. He says, notice what he goes on to say in verse 34 especially. They say, we are offspring of Abraham, verse 33, and never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will, you will become free? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, people say, I know I'm not perfect, and I know I sin, but I'm not, I'm not what you would call a sinner. And, and the assumption is that, that sins are kind of isolated aberrations in our lives. I'm really a very good person. And Jesus is saying, don't you see that your sin is actually an expression of who you really are? 
that you sin in this way and you go on sinning because you are a slave to sin? And then he says, I, I, think, I, th- I think I'm going to show you what the sign of that is. And see what he goes on to say is the sign of it. This is, I think, in verse uh, 37. He says, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. That is, I don't want Jesus in my life because my word finds no place in you, no room. Perhaps even because my word doesn't, doesn't go down, doesn't go forward in your life. Uh, that, would be, that would be for Jesus. You know, this isn't, this isn't uh, David Robertson, Sinclair Ferguson, you know, this isn't whoever. This is Jesus saying the sign that you're in spiritual bondage is that Jesus' Word isn't getting down into your life and making progress and transforming you and setting you free. And of course, the tragedy is, as emerges in this conversation, you need to need to read this as your <clears throat> bedtime reading if need be, is that they're absolutely sure that they're spiritually in the right place. Remind me so much of the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, who had such similar experiences. I don't really think there's a person in this room who could hold a candle of devotion to either of the Wesley brothers. When when did you last do anything like get into a boat in which you had a pretty good chance of losing your life and sailing the Atlantic in order to help in orphanages for children? For God's sake. And in the process of all that, both these young Anglican ministers met Moravian Christians And both of them, interestingly, had rather similar conversations. Charles had a conversation with a man called Peter Bowler. And Bowler said to him, do you hope to be saved? And uh, Wesley said, I do. And Bowler said, well, on on what ground? Why do you hope to be saved? Do you know what Charles Wesley responded? With a million others, that I have used my best endeavors to serve God. Know what Bowler did? He just shook his head and said nothing. John Wesley, who was always the dominant one, went higher up the gravy chain among the Moravians and had a conversation with Spangenberg, who was uh, to become the leader of the whole Moravian community, and this was how the conversation went. He said, Spangenberg, do you know Jesus Christ? Likes Wesley. I paused and said, I know him to be the Savior of the world. True, he replied, but do you know he has saved you? I answered, I hope he has died to save me. Spangenberg added, do you know yourself? And Wesley says, I replied, I did. And later he wrote in his journal, I fear they were vain words. I fear they were vain words. And you see, this is the point that Jesus is making. Um, 
And he, he brings out so marvelously when he says, don't you understand your true spiritual condition that you are in Wesley's hymn, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But here is the wonder of the gospel. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon where I was imprisoned, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So here we are in spiritual darkness in which we walk, in spiritual death in which we live, in spiritual bondage in which we are held. And then uh, comes the climax in verses 37 through 50 where Jesus lifts the stone again and he, he shows them the darkness. He says, the truth of you is you are spiritual orphans, even although you claim to know God. And they, they argue with him. Well, we know God. On what grounds do you claim to know God, says Jesus? We have Abraham as our father. We have Abraham as our father. It's not so true in Scotland now as it was when I was a kid, but half the population in Scotland said that. How do you know you know God? My parents went to church. Parents took me to Sunday school. Father's an elder. No, says Jesus, the problem with you is you say that you are the children of Abraham, but if you were the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. Abraham looked to my day and he rejoiced. That's the sign. The sign that you know God is that you look to Jesus and you rejoice. And actually, he makes this very explicit in verse 42. He says, do you see, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I'm here. I mean, can it, be, can it be any more straightforward than that? How do you know you know God? Because you love His Son, Jesus. This is so, you know, this is so helpful for us. Just as, just as back a couple of chapters ago when Jesus turned to the disciples when everyone else was going and said, are you going to leave me as well? What a, what a wonderful thing it was that, that Peter said. This wasn't great faith, but it was real faith. Lord, where are we going to go? You alone of the words of eternal life. You, you say that from your heart, and that is proof enough that you belong to Him and that you know God because you know there's no one else to whom you can go. And here's another evidence that you're really spiritually alive that you're really a child of God, that you love Jesus, that you love Jesus. And you don't know where that's going to lead you, except that He's promised because He's the light of the world that you'll never walk in darkness. And if you love Jesus, Jesus is saying, then you're no longer an orphan. Oh my, oh my, what a word that is in the early 21st century where either literally or metaphorically we live in a society full of orphans, nowhere to belong, dysfunctional families, unloved children being taught at school that they're princes and princesses and beginning to doubt it by the time they've left elementary school and many of them self-harming by the time they're in secondary school seeking to establish an identity. 
and the simplest Christian is able to say, I know where I belong. I know what my family is. Incidentally, if you're completely new to the Christian faith, do you notice how the church was described in prayer this morning as a family? That's because Jesus is our Savior. And so God is our Heavenly Father. And so we are brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, grandparents, cousins. We've come home to the family, family of God. And it's all, he says, because you've come to trust me and love me. They thought they could see. They thought they had life. They thought they were free and they thought that they belonged. And spiritually, they were in darkness and in death. They were prisoners and they were orphans. Let me apply this very briefly to all of us in in different ways. First of all, to all of us who are Christians, Jesus is showing these people the sheer privilege of being one of his disciples and following him, that you're given spiritual light, that you're given spiritual life, that you're given spiritual freedom, that you're given a spiritual family, glorious provisions. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he has come to provide for us all that we have lost in our spiritual death and darkness. And then perhaps a word too to those of us who are, who are younger students, younger than students. I said when I read John 8, 12, my whole life passes before me because 55 years ago, yes, 55 years ago, I walked into a church rather similarly shaped to this one. I heard a sermon on this very verse. A man sang he wore a brown suit with jet black hair. He was a sergeant in the Glasgow police. He later became a very dear friend, and uh, some of you would know his name, Sir David McNee, who became the Metropolitan Queen's Commissioner of the Police. And a man preached on this text. I was encouraged by an elderly man who had been a missionary in China. His son, who'd been a missionary in Thailand, became a close friend. I preached at his grandson's valedictory service as he went to Thailand. Another son to Vietnam. Whole life passes before me because one night, one sermon, John chapter 8, verse 12, if you follow me, says Jesus, you'll never walk in darkness. Fifty-five years later, lots of shadows. Days when it has been dark. But here this great promise is confirmed. Follow me, trust me, love me. See me as your Savior. See me as the one who gives you new life. See me as the one who brings you into the family of God. And perhaps that's the word you need to hear if for some reason or another you just feel need to go to church. But others said, come on along with us to church. And for some reason, you haven't said, no, I'm not interested in church. There's just something stirring within you. Or it may have been stirring for months, and you've not really known what it is. Of course, you haven't known what it is, because 
by nature, you're in the darkness. But now Jesus is coming and the light is shining, beginning to become a little clearer. And you've lost all sense of my voice and accent because there is another insistent voice saying to you from this passage in Scripture, I am the light of the world. Come now. If you follow me, trust me, come to love me, you will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. Your chains fallen off, your heart set free, then you're able to say, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ that you have given to us in your love for us, in your grace towards us. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who who have known you a long time may, may be wonderfully refreshed by knowing from your word all the privileges into which he has brought us. And those of us who are on the margins and uncertain and unclear, we pray that we may, however sore it is for Jesus to, as it were, lift up the stone and show us all the creepy crawlies of our own hearts and all the struggles we have with him and how at times we want to run away but feel we, we can't ever escape his light shining on us. We pray that you'll bring us to surrender and to trust and to love as you've done to so many in this room. Bring us into the family, we pray in Jesus' name.